Hello, mystery fans, and welcome to episode two of Michael Bradley's None Without Sin. My name's Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on None Without Sin. Faithless Episcopal priest Candace Miller is called to minister to the family of a murdered real estate mogul and discovers an intriguing loaf of bread left on the corpse. Newspaper journalist Brian Wilder visits his friend, police detective Mick Flanagan, to get the scoop on the killing. But the police are still processing the evidence from the crime scene. Candace is anxious to discover why the bread left at the crime scene feels so familiar. Does she hold the secret that could crack the case open? Chapter 9 Candace leaned out of the elevator and glanced around. Seeing no one, she stepped out and moved down the hall. The thud of her footsteps on the tile floor echoed off the whitewashed walls. As she passed, Candace glanced at the door for the Office of Newark Dentistry and completely ignored the next one which was for Dr. Biddick, an ear, nose, and throat specialist. She strode to the end of the hall and paused outside the last door. The small black plaque beside it was simple and unadorned. It read Blackwell Counseling Services. She checked her watch before going in. 6.40 p.m. The last client would be long gone, as well as two of the therapists. She slipped through the door into a silent and empty waiting room. Another door was across the room, and she wasted no time passing through that into the suite of offices beyond. Candace stepped past the empty reception area with a sliding window that looked back into the waiting room where she'd just been. A nearby door stood open, and the sound of someone typing on a keyboard drifted into the hall. She peeked around the doorframe, and glanced into the office beyond. It was scarcely furnished. A paisley sofa sat along the wall near the door. The sunken cushions bore witness to years of use. The evening sunset shone through the floor-to-ceiling window along the opposite wall. The long curtains that draped down either side framed the window in pale blue. A meager wooden desk sat before the window. The room's only occupant was behind the desk, leaning over a laptop and typing feverishly. Candace rapped on the doorframe with her knuckles. Samantha Blackwell glanced up with a smile, which quickly changed to a momentary look of surprise. Oh, Candace, I, um, wasn't expecting you. Candace moved into the office and took a seat on the sofa. I figured you'd still be here. Samantha gestured to the laptop. Just catching up on my notes from today's sessions. What brings you over here? Candace studied Samantha for a second before responding. Something seemed off. The top two buttons on her beige silk blouse were undone, revealing quite a bit of flesh. She'd never known Samantha to be so careless about her appearance, particularly when facing clients. Uh, do you usually... Candace felt a rush of heat on her face. What? Samantha asked, 
You're showing quite a bit of... Uh, Candace gestured towards Samantha's neckline. Samantha glanced down, then laughed. Sorry, didn't realize that button had popped. She quickly fumbled with the button. Damn, I hope it wasn't like that all day. The comment and the laugh that followed seemed forced. Candace sank back into the sofa and folded her arms. I assume you heard about Robbie? Yeah, what a tragedy. Samantha's eyes darted toward the door, then back at Candace. Have you spoken to his wife? I was there on Saturday, after his body was discovered. Candace closed her eyes and shook her head. It wasn't pleasant. Death never is. Samantha checked her watch. How are you holding up? Candace rubbed the back of her neck and grunted. I've been better. You don't look like you've slept much. Candace didn't respond at first. The fatigue from the last few restless nights weighed heavily on her. That's the understatement of the decade. Have you pilfered anything lately? What? The sudden change in subject unsettled Candace. A hot tingle rushed up her cheeks as she stumbled over her response. No, well, ah, uh, it was maybe. Samantha held her hand up as she laughed. Say no more. Then she leaned forward, elbows on the desk. You do realize I can help you with this. Candace shifted in her seat and averted her eyes. I still think I can beat this on my own. Samantha was her solitary confidant regarding her kleptomania. But she was not ready for therapy. Samantha shrugged. Okay, I'm here when you change your mind. The room fell silent, and a sudden awkwardness hung in the air. Candace recalled the glass angel she'd stolen from Marissa Reynolds's room. It had been so easy to pocket the tiny figurine. She'd become a resourceful thief over the years, a master at the sleight of hand needed to abscond with her prize even in a crowded room. She never stole anything of great worth, mostly just shiny trinkets that caught her eye. But the shame and regret that loomed over her always seemed disproportionate to her crime, like she'd stolen a dollar bill, but was being punished for robbing a bank. Candace decided it was time to change the subject. Was Robbie still coming to see you? Yes, he was still a client. He's been seeing you for a while. It's been, what, a year since I referred him to you? Candace said. You know I'm not supposed to talk about this with you. Candace held out her open palm. Why was he seeing you? When he asked me if I knew any good therapists, he never told me why he needed one. She furrowed her brow and added, What if he was killed because of something he was discussing with you? Samantha said, All my sessions are confidential, but if the... Her words ended abruptly. Candace heard movement by the door. She followed Samantha's gaze and found Alex Brennan standing in the doorway. He looked at Candace, and for a moment, 
she thought his eyes darkened with a mix of surprise and anger. Then he smiled, and his eyes were suddenly bright and welcoming once again. He glanced at Samantha. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that you had company. Not to worry. A sudden change washed over Samantha. Her words became breathy. Her eyes brightened. She reached for the top button on her blouse, the one that had been undone earlier, and began to finger the round piece of plastic. We were just chatting. She gestured toward Candace. Do you know? Alex interrupted. We've met. Candace added, just this morning. Without taking her eyes off Alex, Samantha rose from her seat and rounded the desk. Candace, I've got some business to attend to with Alex. Can we continue this discussion later? Candace eyed the therapist for a moment, then stood. Sure, I'll give you a call. Samantha was quick to usher Candace through the waiting room and open the outer office door. Before exiting the waiting room, Candace glanced back at the door that led to the inner parts of the office. She wondered how long the affair had been going on, because she was sure that was what was going on between them. Although Samantha wasn't married, she was certain that Alex Brennan was. She'd noticed a gold wedding band on his finger that morning when they'd met at St. Matthew's. He wasn't wearing it a few minutes ago, but there was a distinct indentation around his finger to indicate that he usually wore the ring. Probably took it off before coming into the office. Did Samantha know that he was married? Candace had known her for two years, and in that time, they'd become close. There wasn't a lot that she didn't know about Samantha. But discussions about the therapist's love life were often met with resistance. Now, Candace understood why. Didn't know you had office hours this late, she said. Samantha stammered for a moment. I, um, no, I usually don't see clients this late. He's a client? Samantha's jaw tightened. No, I mean, I can't talk about why people come here to see me. She inched the door closed, forcing Candace to step out into the hallway. I'll talk to you later, not tonight. Let's talk tomorrow. This sentence was punctuated with a click as the door closed, and another click as the door lock was engaged. Chapter 10 Tuesday Brian waited by the second-floor elevator in Northern Delaware University's Hennessy Hall. His morning meeting with Roger Halderman, dean of the university's journalism department, had ended earlier than he'd anticipated, which freed up the rest of his morning. The meeting, a discussion about the continuation of the journalism internships at the Newark Observer, consisted primarily of Roger inquiring if Brian wanted to continue with the internships for the fall semester, and Brian saying yes. The remainder of the 20-minute meeting was idle chit-chat between the two men, swapping stories from their years in journalism. Roger, 15 years Brian Sr., 
and his own long, illustrious career at a Chicago newspaper before coming to the university. Brian enjoyed hearing tales of the day-to-day insanity of a busy, windy city newsroom. At the pinnacle of his own career, he'd rarely stepped into a newsroom, instead filing his stories remotely while en route to cover the next. The elevator doors opened, and Brian was surprised when Alex Brennan stepped out. The man was carrying an overstuffed leather briefcase. The zipper was wide open, and Brian doubted it would close even if someone had tried. A bundle of papers and a thick textbook peeked out of the opening. The shoulder strap strained beneath the weight. With Alex was a young student, tall and gaunt with wavy dark hair. The student was chattering away and gesticulating wildly. From Alex's creased brow and the tightness in his jaw, it was obvious that it was a conversation that he wanted no part of. And if there is a unity between the three persons, the student said. When Alex caught sight of Brian, his face lit up with a mix of excitement and relief. He thrust his hand forward. Brian, sorry I'm late. My last class ran over. Brian was momentarily startled by the greeting, but quickly picked up on his cue. No problem, I was a little late myself. The student, unaware that he had lost his audience, continued to prattle on said that the Trinity was more about the relationship. Alex turned to the student. Philip, I have a meeting with Mr. Wilder. We need to continue this conversation later. The student shook his head in protest. But, Professor, Alex glared back at him with a reddening face and nostrils flaring. His words came out slow, deliberate, and hard. I said later. As Philip walked away, shoulders hunched and head down like a puppy that had just been scolded, Alex returned his gaze to Brian and smiled. Thanks for playing along. I would have been stuck listening to his inane commentary on my lecture for an hour. Some students don't know when to quit. Alex began to move down the hallway and Brian decided to walk with him. He gestured over his shoulder. Is he a bad student? Philip Baxter, Alex shrugged. He's actually a brilliant student, but he thinks that every fact in philosophy should be questioned ad nauseum. And I usually take the brunt of the questioning. It gets old after a while. Refresh my memory. You teach religious studies? Alex shifted the heavy bag from one shoulder to the other. Among other things, the administration likes to get every drop of blood it can out of us. Brian noted the sarcasm in Alex's words. It was a similar story in journalism as well. Many of his friends in the industry often complained it was becoming increasingly difficult to focus on one particular area of news when budget and headcount were constantly being slashed. Welcome to the modern workforce. Do more with less, he said. Alex halted by a door, the brass plate emblazoned with his name. He unlocked the door and they entered a small, cluttered office. The most prominent piece of furniture was the oak desk at the opposite side of the room. The intricate carving around the desktop's edge and the tongue-and-groove construction revealed that 
This was not typical university-issued furniture. There was only a small surface area visible among the papers stacked in uneven piles. Two side-by-side bookshelves along the wall overflowed with volumes, both modern textbooks and antique editions. A single leather club chair, chocolate brown in color and cracked with wear, was positioned before the desk. Have a seat, Alex said, gesturing to the chair. He rounded the desk and rested the briefcase in between two heaps of paper. You're a bit of an enigma to me. Of course, I'm familiar with your background, an award-winning journalist of the highest caliber. Father Blake has nothing but good things to say about you, yet here you sit, running a small newspaper in a small town. I can't figure it out. Alex pulled some papers from his bag and placed them on the desk. Brian's mouth formed a lazy grin, but inside his stomach tightened into a knot. This was a conversation topic that surfaced more often than he'd like. It was difficult to separate himself from his past. He realized it was only logical that people would find his presence in Newark to be a curiosity. How long must he live here before people stopped being curious? I was looking for a change, Brian said. Alex lifted the thick textbook out of the briefcase, briefly searched the desk for a spot to set it, then placed the book on the front edge of the desk. As Alex withdrew his hand, his elbow pushed into one of the heaps of paper, sending the top twenty or so sheets fluttering to the floor. He tried to make a quick grab for the first few sheets, and in doing so, inadvertently pushed the briefcase forward on the desk. The case hit the textbook and sent it tumbling onto the floor at Brian's feet. Brian watched the comedy of errors unfold, trying to stifle a laugh. As Alex scrambled to gather up the spilt paperwork, Brian leaned forward to pick up the fallen textbook. As he lifted it from the floor, a slip of folded notepaper fell from between the pages. Brian snatched it up and got a glimpse of the six words printed on the note. He set the book back on the desk. This fell out of your textbook. Brian held the note out to Alex. Do your students usually send threatening letters? Alex took the note from Brian and read it aloud. You won't get away with this. Any idea what it means? Brian asked. A smile broke on Alex's lips. It's probably just some... Then the color suddenly rushed from his face. The smile faded. I just remembered I've got an important meeting to get to. Alex rounded the desk and moved quickly to the door. He pulled it open and stood to the side. Sorry to rush you out. Thanks for stopping by. Brian took the hint. He rose from the chair and moved through the door. In the hallway, Brian turned to speak to Alex once more, but found the door was already closing behind him. Brian stepped back into the outer office of Roger Halderman's suite. The dean's receptionist, Rachel Wallen, looked up from her computer and greeted him with a broad smile. She brushed her black hair away from her face. Back so soon, Roger's not here. He had another meeting across campus. Brian placed his hands on the desk and leaned forward, 
I'm actually here to see you. Rachel let out a soft moan. Really? Intriguing. She tilted her head and toyed with a few strands of her hair. Her voice was warm and inviting, almost sultry. And what does Brian Wilder want with me? Information. Rachel's sigh was loud like a pressure release on a newly opened bottle of soda. Is that all I am to you, an information source? She leaned forward, looked up, and locked eyes with him. When are you going to take me out for dinner? Brian felt his face flush. Rachel. She looked at him with pouty lips and doe-like eyes. We should go out, she said. We would be awesome together. Now it was Brian's turn to sigh. I'm not interested in seeing anyone right now, but when I am. Rachel waved to dismiss his words. Yeah, yeah, whatever. What do you need this time? Anything you can get me on Alex Brennan. Chapter 11 an afternoon mist coated the windshield of the Mustang as Brian pulled into the parking lot of Reynolds Real Estate. The lot was empty except for a yellow late-model Volkswagen Beetle. The license plate caught his eye. C-U-P-K-8-K-E. Cupcake. He smiled. As he stepped through the front door, the young woman behind the front desk looked up from her computer screen. Her long, ash-colored hair had a streak of purple on the left side. A victim of too much moose, it fell in brittle strands over her shoulders. He figured she was twenty-three, possibly twenty-four at the most. A sweet perfume that he couldn't identify hung thick in the air and caught in his throat as he breathed. Can I help you? she said. He caught sight of the nameplate on the desk. Mandy Pullman. Brian handed her a business card. I'm Brian Wilder from the Newark Observer. He glanced at the office space behind her. There had been an attempt to tidy up, but he could still tell the police had been through the files and drawers. If you're looking to sell us something, it's not a good time. Brian smiled and shook his head. Not selling anything. I'm a former client of Robbie's. He'd learned long ago to read the situation and go with what garnered the most access to information. Just wanted to stop in and pay my respects. It's such a tragic thing to have happened. He didn't feel even a moment's guilt in deceiving her. She didn't reply, instead looked briefly down at her desk. When Mandy looked up at him again, her eyes were moist beneath a heavy layer of mascara and eyeshadow. We shouldn't be open today, you know. She clutched a balled-up tissue and dabbed at her eyes. But two of the other realtors have deals in flight, she gestured behind her. But like they're not even here. Probably at home, enjoying a day off. He studied her face. She seemed to teeter between sorrow and indignation, but it lacked the distress of a lover in mourning. This was going to take 
tact. A wrong word in either direction and she might clam up instantly. Brian gestured behind her. I see the police have been here. She nodded. Yeah, came in yesterday, tore through everything and left a big mess. She thumbed over her shoulder at the file cabinets behind her desk, then added, Guess who had to clean it up? She rolled her eyes to signify her displeasure. He nodded his understanding. The police aren't known for being compassionate during their searches. Except perhaps Mick Flanagan. The most compassionate cop he'd ever met. Did they seize much of Robbie's stuff? They like emptied his desk. Mandy leaned an elbow on her desk and rested her chin in her palm. Took his laptop, too. Kept asking me if Robbie... Mr. Reynolds had an appointment book. I told him, everything's on the computer. He made a quick mental note of her slip of the tongue. He wondered if there might be some truth to Mildred's rumor about Robbie's alleged affair with his receptionist. I'm sure Robbie had everything password protected. Probably even encrypted, he said. Encrypted? Don't know nothing about that, but damn straight about passwords. She glanced around as if checking the empty office for eavesdroppers. There were none. Didn't tell him I had access. Brian lifted his eyebrows in faux surprise. You have access? She raised her head, looking proud of herself. Yep, had to. I kept track of his appointments, got access to everybody's calendars. Brian folded his arms and frowned. Robbie always struck me as someone who didn't like to give up control of anything. I doubt he'd give anyone access to his calendar, even you. Mandy's lips tightened and she pressed a few keys in her computer keyboard. Then she spun the screen around toward him. See? Brian leaned over the desk and scanned down the list of entries. Two weeks of appointments were visible, last week and this week. His eyes stopped on the entries for the previous Friday. There were several appointments throughout the business day. They looked innocuous enough. There was one, however, that held his gaze. 10 o'clock p.m. A.B. I stand corrected he said. My apologies for doubting you. She returned the computer monitor to its original position. Her smile held a faint, smug satisfaction. That's okay. I'm smarter than people think, you know. She brushed a few strands of hair back from her face. They think I'm dumb because I don't have some fancy college degree, but I listen. I know more than everybody thinks. Time to tread carefully. Brian had been able to get her talking, but she was opening up more than he expected. He mimicked her earlier search for eavesdroppers, and then sat on the edge of the desk, folding his arms across his chest. Probably a lot of secrets in a place like this. Mandy grinned and leaned back in her chair. You got no idea. I won't name names, but one of the realtors? 
She glanced over her shoulder to one of the desks behind her. Gives more than just tours. And the house is up for sale. If you know what I mean. I guess you knew about Robbie, too. She straightened her back, turned her eyes away from him, and made a poor job of feigning ignorance. What about Robbie? You know. There were rumors all over town about it. People talk. Mandy looked away, seeming to ponder his words for a moment. Then she sighed, shaking her head. I told him. She lifted the crumpled tissue to her eyes, dabbing lightly the outer edge of each. Told him people would find out. It's not the sort of thing you can keep secret for too long. She looked up at Brian, eyes like a sad puppy dog. Do the police know? Brian shook his head. Not yet, but it's only a matter of time. Mandy leaned back in her chair again, folding her arms. He was so stupid. I'm always up for a trip to the casinos in Philly, but Robbie, he went all the time. Loved to play cards, he did. Gambling. Mandy gave him a quick nod. Yeah. What do you think? Brian was forced to suppress a snicker. He'd been prepared for the tear-filled admission of an affair from the dead man's mistress, not a hidden gambling addiction. Did he lose much money? Shitloads. That wife of his wasn't too happy about it either. Brian opened his mouth to ask her a further question, but withheld it when the front door swung open. A slim man strode in, exuding the confident air of someone who held himself in high esteem. His gray trousers and silken shirt looked starched and precisely pressed. A blue and black striped tie hung loosely from his collar. Brian knew Jamie Wilkerson by reputation only. It wasn't the most flattering of reputations. Womanizer and arrogant son of a bitch, as Mildred had put it. It was no wonder that Jamie worked for Robbie. The two probably got along like a house on fire. Jamie stopped at the front desk, barely noticing Brian's presence, and leered down at the receptionist, his eyes focused on her low neckline. Hey, Mans, any messages for me? Mandy gave the realtor an abrupt shake of her head and disdainful frown. Jamie turned to Brian as if he'd just become aware of the journalist. He thrust his hand forward. Jamie Wilkerson, are you buying or selling? Brian Wilder, neither. Jamie's handshake faltered quickly with Brian's response, as if the energy required to be cordial couldn't be spared for anyone not in need of a realtor. Just here to pay my respects, Brian explained. The realtor's disinterest was evident when his gaze drifted toward a desk in the far corner. Yeah, well, thanks for coming in. He moved away from the reception desk and headed toward the coffee machine along the back wall. Brian leaned forward, lowering his voice. Doesn't seem too upset to have just lost his boss. Mandy frowned. He figures he's next in line to run this place. She paused to glance over her shoulder. 
He's going to be in for a surprise. Brian looked back toward the coffee machine to find Jamie scooping sugar into a black coffee mug. You know something he doesn't? Her frown turned into a sneer. Robbie told me all kinds of stuff. Really? You two must have been close. She held up her hand and crossed her fingers. Like that? Sometimes. She flashed a smile that oozed with double entendre. Jamie crossed to the far corner desk. The realtor didn't seem to be paying them any attention. Brian leaned a little closer to Mandy. Were you and Robbie having an affair? She let out a gasp and huffed in disgust. What kind of a girl do you think I am? I'd never have an affair with a married man. Brian smiled as he looked forward to telling Mildred that her precious gossip mill was wrong. And then Mandy said, all we ever did was have sex. Chapter 12 Candace stared at the screen of her laptop and reread the opening line of the sermon she was writing for Sunday's service. She'd spent most of the afternoon writing the first draft. But now, as she reread it, she was as disappointed by the effort as she figured her congregation would be on Sunday. This was going to need a lot of revision. She pushed back from the desk and rolled her shoulders to relieve some of the tension. Her mind was cloudy, probably from staring at the computer screen for too long. There was a mild ache behind her eyes. She squeezed the bridge of her nose and groaned. She stepped out of her small church office and wandered out to the sanctuary and took a seat in the front row. Candace revisited the crime scene again in her mind. The mental image was as clear as a photograph. The bread still intrigued her. Her continued internet searches had come up empty, but it still seemed familiar. Broken bread on the chest of a dead man, or perhaps a dying man. The answer was on the edge of her memory, but she still struggled to reach it. Candace considered the symbolism of bread in the church and how it was linked to the atonement of sins. Then it hit her. Religious history class in seminary. That was where she'd heard about them. Sin eaters. Later that evening, Candace climbed the steps to the front porch of a Victorian-style house on West Main Street. She was five minutes early for her arranged 6.30 appointment. Light blazed from the broad windows on the first floor, casting a golden aura over the front yard. Once on the porch, she glanced behind her at the street and then across the street at the Newark Country Club. The parking lot was teeming with cars. Tuesday was surf and turf night. She smiled, then pushed the doorbell. The woman who greeted her had stringy, graying hair that flopped on her shoulder without form or body. She wasn't what Candace would call obese, but the woman wasn't thin either. Her hands, 
pudgy and small, clutched a dish towel. Yes? The woman's voice was soft and reticent. I'm Reverend Candace Miller. Your husband told me to stop by. She paused, then added. He was going to call to let you know. The woman's pale lips turned up at the edge to form the slightest of smiles. She wiped her hands on the dish towel, then extended her hand. Tony Brennan, Alex's wife, please come in. As Candace crossed the threshold, she was arrested by a tantalizing aroma that filled the foyer. She stopped for a moment to inhale deeply and allowed her pleasure to escape as a moan. Smells good. Tony's face flushed. Thanks. I had some baking to do for this weekend's bake sale at St. Matthew's. She led the way toward the living room. My husband isn't here yet. Said he'd be right home, so I don't know what's keeping him. She gestured to a dark mauve Chesterfield. Lowering herself onto the sofa, Candace brushed her hand along the lush fabric. Was it velvet? She couldn't remember the last time she'd seen a sofa covered in velvet. Tony took a seat in the leather club chair, crossed her legs, and then adjusted the hem of the pale blue skirt to cover her knees. You have a nice house. Candace gestured toward the roll-top desk across the room. Some beautiful antiques. Tony nodded, then mumbled, thank you. A long silence fell over the room. Tony remained still, with her hands folded in her lap, her gaze directed down toward the floor in front of her. Have you and Alex lived in Newark long? Candace asked, mainly to break the awkward silence. Over 20 years. The room fell silent again. Candace tapped the sofa arm gently with her fingers. Her gaze wandered around the room and fell on the sizable portrait which hung over the fireplace at the far end. It was an oil replica of the Michelangelo fresco, The Creation of Adam. The silence in the room shattered as the front door opened and Alex Brennan hurried in. Sweat dripped from his ruddy face as he kicked the door closed behind him and swiftly moved toward the living room. I'm so sorry, I got waylaid by John DeNicola on my way out. Sociology professor and royal pain in the ass. He glanced at Candace with wide eyes. Sorry, pardon my language. She grinned. No worries. I hear far worse at the annual inter-parish softball game. We Episcopal ministers can curse up a storm when we want to. He laughed, then turned his gaze to Tony, who still sat silently in the chair. The jocularity behind his voice turned stern. I'll need my gray trousers and a white shirt for tomorrow. Please make sure they are pressed and ready. Tony nodded, then rose from the chair and left the room. Nice meeting you. Candace said as Tony disappeared. Alex gave a wave of dismissal. Don't mind her, she's just shy. Come to my study. He turned and walked from the living room. I was surprised to hear from you. 
It's not often these days that I get a call from a woman I just met. His remark made her think of the previous evening. She wondered how Samantha and Alex had ended up together. Who made the first move in the affair? She hoped it was Alex. She wanted to think of Samantha as the seduced and not the seducer. Candace followed him across the hall and through a dark-stained oak door. The room beyond wasn't so much a study as it was a small library. Every inch of wall space, from floor to ceiling, consisted of bookshelves. Books filled every available spot on the shelves with volumes stacked side by side, and even on top of each other. Leather-bound, hardback, paperback, and textbook. All manner of books were represented throughout the room. Alex crossed to an antique oak desk, which was centered in the library. A double-globe antique brass lamp stood on the corner of the desk. Several leather-bound volumes were stacked nearby. A black digital voice recorder sat on the desk beside a decorative oak stand. The light gleamed off the silver buttons of the recorder, catching Candace's eye. Cradled in the oak stand was an empty letter opener sheath. Alex sat down in the chair behind the desk. So how can I help you? Something about religious history? Yes, Candace said. What can you tell me about sin eaters? He became animated upon hearing her question. He rubbed his hands together and smiled broadly. It's funny you should ask. Sin eaters are a hobby horse of mine. Perhaps obsession would be a better word. He crossed to a nearby bookshelf and scanned the book spines. I gave a lecture on them just last month, Candace said. I remember a few details from seminary, but it wasn't something your lecturers spent much time on. He laughed. Not surprising. It's a bit of a taboo, really. An obscure part of the church's history. He slipped a book from the shelf and crossed to the desk. It's in here. Brand's Popular Antiquities of Great Britain. He rested the book on the desk and flipped through the pages. Candace circled around until she stood beside him. The leather-bound book looked old, perhaps a century and a half or more. As he turned the pages, a musty smell rose from the book. Her eyes were only able to catch the occasional word and the faintest of glimpses at the intricate artwork. She feared that his rapid thumbing of the pages would tear the yellowed paper. Here, he said, finally finding what he was searching for. He pointed to the page. Candace leaned forward and gazed at the elaborate engraving. Despite the book's age, the coloring of the image was vibrant. It depicted an 18th century parlor, a small gathering of people dressed in what Candace assumed was the finest of mourning fashion of the time. They stood at a distance from a coffin centered in the illustration. Standing beside the coffin was a solitary man. His tattered apparel was in distinct contrast to that of the other mourners. His arms were outstretched over the coffin, holding a round loaf of bread. The Sin Eater, 
one of the worst career choices in history, Alex said. It was the wealthy's way of trying to skirt the consequences of their sin. It was mainly practiced in Europe, wasn't it? England, Scotland, and Wales mostly. When a wealthy family member was dying, the grieving family would seek out a sin eater. A loaf of bread would be placed on the chest of the dying. The bread absorbed all of the departing soul's sins, or so the belief went. Candace filled in the details as memories from seminary returned. And the sin eater would eat the bread, hence taking on the sins of the dying. Alex turned and smiled at her. See, you remember more than you think. Usually, the sin eater would come from the poorest of the poor. They get the bread, a little ale, and a small payment for their service. But you had to be extremely desperate to pawn your eternal soul. She folded her arms and reflected on the concept. It holds certain parallels with the sacrifice of Christ. But even in that day and age, they must have understood enough scripture to know that a common man can't wipe away someone's sin. Can't they? Isn't that what Father Blake does every Saturday during confession? That's part of a never-ending theological debate. She paused for a moment. Was that a note of doubt she heard in his question? I thought you were Catholic. Don't you go to St. Matthew's? Before he could answer, there was a knock on the study door. Alex crossed the room with a rapid step and yanked the door open. His voice was hushed, but not enough that Candace didn't hear his harsh words. I thought I told you not to bother me. She saw Tony Brennan's face through the crack between the door and the frame. Her eyes were hung low and half closed in what looked like fear. She couldn't hear what Tony said, only Alex's response. No, she doesn't want any. He paused. No, get back to the kitchen and don't interrupt again. Chapter 13 Candace pushed the front door to her cottage closed and dropped her keys and mobile phone on the small table by the door. She slipped off her jacket as she moved to the kitchen. After draping the windbreaker over a chair, she poured a glass of iced tea and leaned back against the kitchen counter. Her conversation with Alex Brennan had been enlightening. His interpretation of the practice of sin-eating had aligned with what she remembered from seminary. The concept behind the archaic ritual seemed outlandish, especially when compared with theological doctrines of the modern church. Candace felt certain that she'd be hard-pressed to find any minister these days who would find the practice to be legitimately supported by biblical principles. However, as Candace considered the crime scene, she struggled to see how the ritual of the sin eater might fit into the murder. Was the killer trying to absolve Robbie of some sin before he died? If the killer had been trying to emulate a sin eater, they'd made a serious error by leaving the bread behind. Candace finished her iced tea, 
and placed the glass in the kitchen sink. Maybe she was overthinking this whole thing, probably making connections that weren't there. Suddenly, she felt silly for considering the possibility that Robbie's murder was related to the Sin Eaters. At least no one knew the absurdity she'd been toying with in her mind. Alex was the only person who knew of her sudden interest in Sin Eaters, and Candace had evaded his repeated questions about her curiosity. No harm done. She grabbed the windbreaker from the chair, moved from the kitchen, and climbed the stairs to her bedroom. After hanging the jacket on a hook behind the door, she undressed and slipped into a lavender sleeveless t-shirt and matching sleep shorts. Candace hopped onto the bed and, with her legs folded beneath her, turned on the television and flipped aimlessly through the channels. When she didn't find anything of interest to watch, she turned to CNN and muted the television. She reached for the cordless phone on the bedside table. Andrew answered her call on the third ring. Twice in one day, this is a surprise, he said. She flapped one of the pillows on the bed, then placed it on top of the other. Just wanted to thank you for giving me Alex's number this afternoon. Glad to help. His tremulous voice sounded distant and distracted. Did he have what you were looking for? Yeah. She laid her head on the pile of pillows. Sometimes her late night calls with Andrew reminded her of those midnight gossip sessions she used to have in high school with her best friend. He was very helpful. Good. She stared up, watching the shadows from the spinning blades of the ceiling fan dance across the popcorn texture of the ceiling. How long had she known Andrew? Two years? I met his wife. Tony? She's a lovely woman, so kind, and always willing to help. She's taught Sunday school for more years than I can remember, likes to teach the older kids. She probably knows every child in my congregation. I think every church has someone like that. The name that immediately popped into Candace's mind was Agatha Bowman. The elderly woman probably held the church record for having the most lifetime volunteer hours, not that anyone was counting. But Agatha, even at her advanced age, still volunteered to help at almost every church and community event. Mine is named Agatha. Oh, Agatha Bowman is a real blessing. Candace widened her eyes in surprise. You know Agatha? Anyone who has been to Newark Day knows Agatha, Andrew said. Candace chuckled remembering how Agatha single-handedly manned the information tent every year at the annual spring event. The 83-year-old woman was incredibly adept at pointing people in the right direction. Although Candace had only been in town for two Newark days, she'd heard all about how, when Agatha had turned 80, the mayor presented her with a proclamation honoring her years of service. Tony and Alex seem like an odd couple. Candace said, abruptly changing the subject. Alex seemed to hesitate before responding. I'm not sure I know what you mean. He's so outgoing and forthright, and possibly an adulterer. 
she bit her tongue on the last thought. It would be inappropriate to voice her suspicions without proof, particularly to Andrew. And she seems so... She struggled for the right word. Andrew tried to help with his own suggestion. Dutiful? What do you know about them? There was another hesitation on the phone. She wondered if she was crossing a line. Her curiosity bordered on the edge of gossip. Their close friendship sometimes made her forget that he was bound, like herself, with certain doctrinal bonds related to confidentiality. His a bit more stringent than hers. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have asked that, she said. No, that's fine, Andrew said. I don't know too many details. They met at Princeton University. She was a student and he was a lecturer. From what I hear, her father was quite wealthy and left her with a nice little trust fund. That's a touchy subject with Alex. Apparently, the stipulations of the fund are very strict. They don't have kids. They've lived here in Newark for almost 20 years. Does Tony have a job? Candace asked. No. She's a stay-at-home housewife. Andrew yawned. Alex seems to prefer that. She thought again about Alex's visit to Samantha's office the night before. It was possible that she'd misinterpreted the incident. But it was hard to shake Samantha's obvious excitement when Alex arrived. Do you think their marriage is happy? Who's to say? Happiness comes in many forms. They could very well be blissfully in love. Candace glanced at the clock on the bedside table. 9.45. Andrew sounded as tired as she felt. I don't want to keep you. Thanks again for giving me Alex's phone number. Anytime I can be of service, he said. After the call ended, Candace stretched out on the bed and closed her eyes. She didn't feel like getting out of bed to turn off the light. Maybe she could sleep with it on. Her head sank into the pillows as she tried to clear her mind. She tried a meditation exercise she'd learned in seminary. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in. It didn't help. Her mind still raced. She turned her head and glanced at the bedroom door. Out of bed, she moved to the door and dug through the pockets of her jacket, which still hung on the hook. When her hand emerged, it was holding a small digital voice recorder. Candace studied it as she turned it over and over in her hands. The recorder itself was black, but the buttons, speaker, and microphone were all a glossy silver, lustrous enough to catch her eye. When she'd passed around the desk to get a better view of the book Alex had pulled from the bookshelf, her hand had run along the desktop casually, cupping the small recorder and slipping it in her pocket. It had been almost instinctual, to the point that she barely remembered the theft herself. She dropped to her knees before the bed and shifted the mattress to reveal a cavity in the box spring below. She reached in, 
lifted out a plastic box and set it on the floor before her. With the lid off, she stared at the assortment of small objects within. It was an odd collection of trinkets, some appearing to be more valuable than others. There'd never been much rhyme or reason to what she stole, the only constant being that it had to be small enough for her to slip into her pocket. Among the hodgepodge, there was the gold pocket watch she'd taken from a senior lecturer at seminary, the silver charm bracelet from a choir member at her first church, and a circular white opal brooch she'd taken from an elderly member of her Newark congregation. She dipped her hand into the box and lifted out a string of black rosary beads. A tinge of guilt filled Candace as she let the beads dangle between her fingers. She'd stolen them from Andrew's house almost a year ago. Candace replaced the rosary in the box, then placed the digital voice recorder in as well. As she closed the lid of the box, she said a quick prayer for forgiveness. Chapter 14 Wednesday When Brian arrived at the Newark Observer office on Wednesday morning, he knew it would be a long day. On Wednesdays, he submitted the next edition of the newspaper to the printer. As he walked through the front door, he ran through a mental checklist of what he still needed to do before the day was over. In the morning, he needed to proofread all the stories, including those submitted by three journalism interns from the university. Brian would be lashed to his desk in the afternoon working through the formatting and layout for the Thursday edition. Despite having become adept at the placement of stories, photographs, and advertisements over the years, the layout process still took Brian hours, often keeping him in the office well into the evening. It would be an exhausting day, but the work was always worth it when the next edition hit the streets the following morning. To add to his already busy Wednesday schedule, he had a lunch appointment with Mick Flanagan at noon. Brian had heard through the grapevine that the autopsy report for Robbie Reynolds had been completed by the county coroner and handed off to the Newark police. He was hoping Mick would be forthcoming with the details over lunch. The reception desk was empty. Wednesday was Mildred's day off. Until Jessica arrived, Brian would have the office to himself. He settled himself at his desk and started working his way through his proofreading. Brian was 45 minutes into his efforts when the phone on his desk rang. He was tempted to let the call go to voicemail, preferring to not be interrupted. But on the fourth ring, he reached for the phone and was greeted by Rachel Wallen's sing-song voice. You asked for info on Alex Brennan, she said. I couldn't find much of interest, but I got a few tidbits for you. Great. Tell me all you know. He taught two years in Princeton before coming here. He was the youngest professor to ever get hired here at the university. I guess teaching at an Ivy League school breaks all the barriers. He's got a clean record here as well. No official complaints from students or faculty. But there were some rumors that he tended to get overly friendly with some of his female students. Sexual harassment? Brian asked. Not harassment. Consensual. At least that's what I hear. Apparently he was quite the charmer in his younger days. 
Impressionable young students would fawn all over him. Rachel laughed. I don't think that happens much anymore. Brian scribbled a few notes on a nearby notepad. The university had no issue with his behavior? Nothing was ever officially reported? If there isn't a complaint, the administration doesn't care. The cynicism in her voice was evident. Thanks for digging this up, Brian said. There's one other thing. Again, this is just hearsay, but many of his colleagues think he lives way beyond his means. Working here pays well, but one of the professors told me Alex has a Patek Philippe watch for each day of the week. Maybe he got them on sale, Brian said. Rachel didn't laugh at his little joke. He added, that gives me a lot to think about. While you're thinking about that, think about when you're going to take me out to dinner. You owe me that at least, Rachel said. Brian stammered through his response. I, uh, I'll give it some thought. Come on, Brian, it'd be a hoot. You can't tell me you're not at least curious about how a date with me would go. Brian wasn't sure how to reply. He did find Rachel attractive and found the idea of a possible relationship with her to be enticing. He looked forward to seeing her whenever he came on campus to meet with her boss, but the thought of going on a date with another woman still felt like a betrayal. As if he were cheating on Sarah. I'll give it some thought, but I'm not making any promises, he said reluctantly. Thanks for the info. Shortly before noon, Brian walked up Main Street to Tipsy McStagger's Irish Pub. The lunchtime crowd was already filtering in, creating a twenty-minute wait for a table. Luckily, he caught sight of Mick already seated in the back corner. How's Cheryl? Brian asked as he dropped into the seat across from Mick. The acoustics in the corner kept the din of the lunchtime crowd to a dull roar. Mick nodded and smiled. Good. Then he frowned and shook his head. Pretty horrible, actually. Nauseous all the time. She can't even sit at the dinner table without wanting to throw up. Brian snickered. Is she getting any strange cravings yet? Radishes and jello. Lime jello. Brian turned his head and cringed. Sarah craved fish sticks dipped in chocolate sauce. He glanced over the menu and set it down on the table. The red laminate tabletop was sticky to the touch. Mick frowned and shook his head. Not sure which is worse. But I might have just lost my appetite. The waitress arrived at the table with two glasses of water, and they placed their orders. A chicken Caesar salad for Mick, and for Brian, shepherd's pie. When she walked away, Brian took a long sip from his water glass and studied the thirty-something-year-old detective's face over the rim. His youthful looks were eclipsed by the dark shadows beneath his eyes. Cheryl must be keeping you up all hours, Brian said. You look bushed. Mick nodded. Yeah. And having an ongoing murder investigation doesn't help. The waitress returned with their drinks, setting them on the table, then walked away. Brian stirred his coke with a straw and watched the ice cubes swirl around the glass. Brian said, Speaking of murder cases, 
A broad smile crossed Mick's lips. I knew there was a reason you wanted to have lunch. There's always an ulterior motive with you. You should know me by now. I always have at least five ulterior motives in any given time, Brian laughed. What can you tell me? The autopsy confirmed the cause of death, stabbed, single upward thrust to the heart. What about the knife? Mick smiled. From this point on, everything is off the record until otherwise announced, okay? Brian nodded his acquiescence. Not a knife, Mick said. A brass letter opener. Brian remained silent, hoping Mick would elaborate. He wasn't disappointed. Very ornamental, and... You won't believe this. The blade was engraved. Engraved? Yeah. Mainly a bunch of initials and a date. To A.B. with love, A.C., 1995. Before you ask, no concrete leads on A.B. or A.C. yet. Do you have any idea how many people in Newark have those initials? I can name at least half a dozen. Father Andrew Blake. Amber Butler from the mayor's office. The pharmacist at the downtown CVS. Brian snapped his fingers as he tried to recall the name. Alonzo Benton. Mick gestured for Brian to stop. I don't need you to give me a complete census on everyone in Newark with the initials A.B. Anything interesting come from your search at Robbie's office? Mick raised an eyebrow. You been following me? No, but I stopped by his office yesterday. It was obvious you'd already been through everything. The conversation paused as the waitress returned. She placed the salad in front of Brian and the shepherd's pie in front of Mick, then walked away. Once she was gone, they both laughed and swapped plates. There was nothing remarkable in the office, Mick said. Forensics is still going through Robbie's laptop. I should know more in a few days. One thing forensics did find was some funny accounting going on with Robbie's business. He might have been skimming off the top. Robbie was embezzling money? Mick jabbed at his salad. Yeah. Small amounts almost weekly. When you add them all up, we're talking six figures. Brian whistled and took a long sip from his iced tea. Anything else? A huge grin crossed Mick's face. Yeah. You're never going to believe what else the autopsy found. Chapter 15 The heavy wooden door closed with a thud that echoed through the empty sanctuary of St. Matthew's Catholic Church. Brian stood near the doors and listened to the silence that seemed to float down from the high cathedral ceiling. The intricate carved woodwork on the columns and along the walls and around the windows always filled him with awe. The craftsmanship, the dedication to detail and the beauty of the ornate patterns in the 150-year-old church took Brian's breath away every time he entered. He wondered if perhaps he should come to Mass more often. As he walked along the left aisle, Brian chastised himself for coming. He still had an enormous amount of work to do on the next edition of the newspaper. On his walk back from the restaurant, he'd passed St. Matthew's and decided to stop in to see if Andrew was in a more talkative mood than he'd been on Sunday. He walked slowly toward the front of the church out of reverence for the age-old building. His footsteps on the marble floor sounded like a drumbeat. They echoed despite his efforts to step softly. When he reached the front of the sanctuary, he crossed to a door to the left of the altar. 
He knocked, and a faint voice from the other side invited him to enter. When Brian stepped into the small vestry, he found Andrew standing by an open closet door. Several robes were laid out on a nearby table. Andrew held one of the vestments from a hanger and ran a lint brush over the green cloth. He looked up with a puzzled look as Brian entered. Twice in one week, Andrew said. Has the prodigal turned over a new leaf? <laughs> Not quite. Andrew hung the vestment in the closet and set the lint brush on the table. I guess it's too much to ask for a miracle where you're concerned. Brian laughed. Face it, I'm a hopeless cause. Andrew pulled an empty hanger from the closet and hung a white robe with gold trim over it. No one is hopeless, but some are harder to reach than others. He made a quick inspection of the robe, then placed it in the closet with the other. Brian gestured to the remaining robe on the table. What's all this? Just got them back from the dry cleaner. Andrew gestured to a nearby chair. Have a seat. I'll be done in a moment. Brian pulled the wooden chair away from the wall, noting that the tan curved back and matching tan seat with black legs made it look more like something he'd expect to find in a bistro rather than in the back room of a church. He sat down and watched Andrew inspect the remaining red robe before adding it to the others in the closet. Making a study of Andrew, Brian noticed the hunched shoulders and disheveled hair. There were shadows beneath Andrew's eyes that spoke of sleep deprivation. As the priest pushed the closet door closed, his hands seemed to quake. Andrew usually had rock-solid hands, almost like a surgeon's, leading Brian to wonder if he was ill. Andrew sat in a chair across the table from Brian. The priest leaned back and folded his arms. I expect this isn't a social call. I was wondering. Brian gazed across the table and hesitated. Sarah stood behind Andrew, her arms folded much like the priest's. Talk to him, she said. He can help you. Brian averted his eyes for a moment to regain his composure. When he looked back, Sarah was gone. Andrew stared at him across the table as if waiting for Brian's next words. Alex and Tony. On Sunday, I couldn't help but notice that she seems quite... Andrew finished the sentence. Submissive. Frightened of him, was what I was thinking. Andrew knit his brow and fell silent as if he were pondering his next words carefully. When he finally spoke, he kept his voice low and soft. I've noticed that behavior many times over the years. It places me in a difficult position. Andrew clasped his hands and rested them on the table. I've had parishioners in the past who believed in the strict adage that the wife submits to her husband in all things. That kind of submissiveness doesn't necessarily mean there's abuse. Brian recalled his Sunday morning encounter with the couple. Alex's grip on his wife's arm seemed substantial. Where does one draw the line between intentional obedience and forced submissiveness? 
Have you ever seen any definite signs of abuse? Andrew shook his head. You mean physical signs? Bruising and such? No. And I've given her plenty of opportunities to confide in me. But Tony has never said a word. I've done everything short of asking her outright. What's their story? Brian asked. I don't know much about their history. They've lived in Newark for a good number of years. Tony teaches the older children in Sunday school, very good with children. There was a spot of bother a few years ago with one of the girls. I can't remember all the details. She made some wild accusations about Tony. It turned out the girl was lying the whole time. Like I said, Tony is great with kids. But when she gets around to Alex, do they have kids of their own? Brian asked. No. Any idea why? That's no secret, Andrew said. They had some infertility issues. I'm not betraying a confidence by telling you Alex is pretty vocal about it. Brian nodded to indicate that he understood. The conversation dropped off into silence. Finally, Brian didn't want to hold off any longer. Can we talk about Saturday? Andrew's eyes widened, and his gaze became distant. Saturday? Yeah. Robbie's murder? Oh, that, Andrew said. His body suddenly crumpled under an unseen burden. He averted his eyes, refusing to meet Brian's gaze. I don't really know anything about what happened Saturday. You got a lot closer to the house than... Andrew glanced at his watch and suddenly stood, pushing the chair back roughly. He spoke with a tremulous voice. I'm late for an appointment. He turned his back on Brian and began to walk away. Thank you for coming. Brian rose to his feet. This was the second time that Andrew tried to evade a conversation about Robbie's death. Are you okay? The priest halted but refused to turn and look at Brian. He stammered, I'm... It's... I don't know. How can I help? Andrew ran his hand through his hair. His shoulders slouched forward. It's nothing. I'll deal with this on my own. In the six years that they'd been friends, there had only been one thing that disturbed the priest like this. Brian was one of the few people in Newark who knew about Andrew's past, about his previous parish. He feared asking, but knew that he would be remiss as a friend if he didn't at least try to help. Is this about Pittsburgh? he asked. Andrew didn't respond. He remained still for a minute, his head down and his hands clenched. Brian hoped he hadn't said the wrong thing. Maybe he should have just left it well enough alone. Then, Andrew began to walk away. Thanks for coming, Brian. Chapter 16 Candace stepped out of the Black Stallion Brewery and into the midday sun. Her lunch had been particularly satisfying, 
with the restaurant's black and blue burger being a nice change from the packed lunch she usually brought from home. She'd had every intention of getting a salad when she arrived at the restaurant, until she had seen the burger on the menu. Yes, she was trying to maintain her figure. But after the stressful few days she'd had, she needed a little comfort food. The walk back to her church was a short one, only a few blocks at most. Not in a hurry to return to the sermon she was working on, she took leisurely steps along Main Street. Newark's usual lunch crowd brushed past her as if they were in a race against the clock to get back to their offices or classrooms. A student lugging a backpack overflowing with books stormed by her. The bag over his shoulder smacked into her arm. The student didn't seem to notice the collision and kept walking. As Candace passed the pharmacy, the automatic doors slid open and out stepped a woman who was struggling to carry several plastic shopping bags. Her familiar salt and pepper hair was pulled back, but loose strands floated out in every direction from the woman's head. It reminded Candace of the experiments she did in elementary school science class with a balloon and static electricity. The woman's face was sullen and her eyes downcast. Tony Brennan? Candace said as she approached. Yes. Tony peered at Candace through wire-rimmed glasses. There was a sense of recognition in her eyes. Ms. Miller? Please call me Candace. She gestured to the shopping bags that Tony was wrestling with. Can I help you with those? Tony tried to shift the bags around to get a better grip perhaps to appear in better control of her parcels than she was. Oh, no, I'll be fine. I don't want to inconvenience you. One of the bags slipped from her grasp and fell to the sidewalk. A plastic bottle of aspirin rolled out of the bag and onto the sidewalk. Let me get that, Candace said, lifting the bottle and the bag off the ground. I can take a few others as well. After Tony reluctantly handed a couple of additional bags to her, Candace said, Where did you park? Just around the block. Tony's voice was just as soft and reticent as it had been the night before. As Tony led the way to her parked car, Candace tried to strike up a conversation. Thanks for your hospitality last night. I know it can be difficult when you get an unexpected guest. It was no problem, Tony said. Her response was dry and unemotional. She didn't look at Candace. Her eyes focused straight ahead, never wavering. She walked with timid footsteps. I hear you attended Princeton. Yes, Tony said, again with a lack of emotion. The conversation fell into silence as they turned onto Center Street. The two women walked side by side down the side street. Candace found herself becoming more curious with every step. She wanted to know more about this woman. What was your major? Tony didn't answer immediately. It was like she had to think before responding. Mathematics. I wanted to be a mathematician. Really? I'm terrible at math myself, Candace said. 
I thought math was the most beautiful and most powerful creation of the human spirit. Tony became animated for a moment as she spoke. Her face seemed to light up with a spark of excitement. It is the most precise and concise way of expressing an idea. It's not about numbers, equations, computations, or algorithms. It's about understanding. Understanding the world around me in its purest form. She paused to draw in a breath, then continued with an excited stammer. I, I was fascinated by the Bombieri-Lang conjecture. Have you heard of it? Tony glanced at Candace, then frowned. No, no, of course not. Silly of me. I was, was certain I could solve it, but... Then, just as suddenly, Tony's face became downcast again. That momentary passion was gone. When did you graduate? Candace asked. There was another pause before Tony's reply came. Her jaw tightened as she spoke. I didn't. Oh, was that by choice? Candace grimaced as soon as she asked the question. It was one of those inquiries where she spoke before thinking. Sorry, it's none of my business. That's fine. I left school after Alex and I got married. With his career taking off, he... We felt that it would be best if I stayed at home to take care of the housework, laundry, cooking, and so forth. They turned into a small parking lot. An elderly man sat in the attendance booth, his face buried in a book. He glanced up as they passed, gave a thin-lipped grin, and returned his gaze to the page. Candace remained in step with Tony as they crossed the parking lot. Not far from the entrance, Tony halted beside her car. She lifted the trunk of the Honda and placed the first of her bags inside. Keeping up that house of yours must be a full-time job, Candace said. I struggle just to keep my little cottage clean. Tony placed the rest of her bags into the trunk of the car. It's my responsibility to keep the house neat and orderly. Again, her voice was flat, without the slightest sense of emotion. I have my duties, and I fulfill them. Her archaic choice of words felt like something out of the last century. Candace visualized Tony as being the perfect Stepford wife, submissive and fawning at her husband's feet. The woman had become so impassioned a few minutes ago when talking about math. What could have driven her to give up on her aspirations so easily? Candace knew there were some fundamental churches with strong teachings about the role of a woman in the household. But Alex and Tony were Catholic. She wasn't aware of that level of submissiveness being part of the Catholic doctrine. From what I saw last night, you do an extraordinary job. Candace hadn't seen much of the house, but what she had seen was spotless of clutter and dust. Besides, the compliment couldn't hurt to keep the conversation going. Alex's study alone must be a day's worth of work. When you add in the living room, kitchen, bedrooms, and even the basement, Tony's head suddenly jerked up. Her words came in rapid fire. Basement? What about the basement? Candace tried to explain. 
It's just when you add all the other rooms, it must take... Why did you say basement? Her words sounded like a frantic plea. Tony's eyes became unfocused. Candace placed a reassuring hand on Tony's shoulder. Are you okay? Tony closed the trunk lid and fumbled with the car keys. I'm fine. I, I have to go. Candace stood in shock, at a loss for words. Tony opened the driver's door, slipped inside, and drove away, all while muttering, the basement, go to the basement, now. Chapter 17 Brian stared at the empty Chinese takeout container in the center of the kitchen table. He absently twirled a fork around his plate, pushing the remaining grains of white rice and small figure eights. The day had been a long one. He'd finished the work on the Observer's next edition shortly after 7 p.m. With the final pages uploaded to the printer, he had walked down Main Street to pick up his dinner and returned to his apartment. Now, sitting in his dimly lit kitchen, Brian flipped open his notebook to review his latest discoveries about Robbie Reynolds' murder. He scanned the notes he'd jotted down immediately after his lunch with Mick. Most of what he'd learned had been off the record, so he couldn't publish it until it had been made public. He glanced further down the page to some scribbled notations that reminded him of his conversation with Jessica that afternoon. He had been focused on laying out the front page for the next edition when Jessica entered the office. She dropped into her office chair. Her combat boots thudded loudly when she lifted her feet up on the desk. I've scoured five bakeries for that damn bread, Jessica said. No one in the area bakes it. Giorgio at Barley's Bakery thinks it might be something he called a honey wheat bushman bread. I got the recipe if you want it. Brian dismissed the offer with a wave of his hand. Jessica continued, Giorgio told me the only place that would have that bread is the steakhouse at the mall, but they don't bake it in that round shape, just in those short, narrow loaves. Why didn't you get the recipe? Sarah's voice jolted Brian back to the present and to the dim light of his kitchen. He took his eyes off his notebook and gazed across the table at her, his eyes fixed on her deep blues. Her elbow rested on the table with her chin propped on the palm of her hand. You know I can't bake, he said. So, no leads on the bread? Brian shook his head. Could be an out-of-town bakery. You can order anything online these days. Or maybe homemade? Did you tell Mick about the appointment you found? No. They have Robbie's computer, Brian said. Mick will have found it himself by now. Do you think Robbie was embezzling money to pay his gambling debts? He slid his chair back and stretched his legs out beneath the table. It makes sense. Rumor has it that Robbie was a big gambler. He might have gotten into some hot water with some loan sharks. Could be someone who got tired of waiting for repayment. There's always the blackmail angle, she said. He raised his eyebrows as he considered the possibility. I hadn't thought of that. A series of payments to a blackmailer certainly would fit the pattern. That raises two new questions. If it was blackmail, what was he being blackmailed for? And who was blackmailing him? Brian leaned back and stretched his arms above his head. 
cheater. What? He rested his elbows on the table and clasped his fingers together. That was the word written on his arm. He was having an affair with his receptionist. Perhaps someone found out and was threatening to expose him if he didn't pay up. What about his wife? Sarah gave him an incredulous look. Why would Andrea blackmail her own husband? Not blackmail. What if she found out about the affair? Sarah leaned back and folded her arms. Why is the wife always the prime suspect? I'm just speculating. Sarah shook her head and interrupted. No, you were casting her as the murderer. You were already writing the headline. I could see it in your eyes. Brian laughed. Just a minute. I was not writing the headline. Well, maybe just a little. I was married to you long enough to know what goes on behind those eyes. The sound of Sarah's laugh sent a pang through his heart. There's something else, he said. What? His face flushed with a sudden wave of heat. Well, you're embarrassed? Just tell me. Brian averted his eyes. The coroner found semen in his urethra. He'd ejaculated shortly before death. Sarah looked at him, puzzled. Interesting fact, Brian said. Men urinate after ejaculation to clear the urethra of leftover semen. So, since there was semen in his... Sarah started to say. He died immediately or shortly after. Brian leaned back in his chair. There were traces of dried saliva found on his... Sarah cut him off with a childlike giggle. A blowjob? Possibly. Whatever it was, he was zipped up and presentable when his body was discovered. Silence fell between them. Sarah's face was a mask of concentration, as if she were tumbling the idea through her mind. She cocked her head to one side and opened her mouth to speak, but then sighed and kept silent. Brian studied her face, tracing the soft lines of her jaw. She was just as beautiful as when he'd last seen her. The week before. He stifled the memory. No tears. Any DNA? Sarah asked. He stared at her. Sarah added some context. From the blowjob? Don't know. Brian leaned forward, resting both arms on the table. That Friday night appointment bothers me. Did he know his killer was coming? Mick said the time of death was somewhere between 9 and 11. What were the initials? A.B.? Brian frowned. Could be anyone. There are probably hundreds of people in the area with those initials. I can name half a dozen alone. He held up his fingers and started counting them off. And a banister from the laundromat. Albert Bond, Father Blake from the church. Before he could add another name to his list, the phone rang. He moved into the living room and checked the caller ID before answering. With a smile, he put the phone to his ear. Hey, Mick, what's up? Mick's words were rushed and his tone urgent. Brian listened carefully for a few moments, making mental notes. Then he said, thanks for the tip. I'll head over in a few minutes.
He set the phone down and stood a moment to replay the brief conversation in his mind. Then he said, That was Mick. There's been another murder. He turned back toward the kitchen and stared at the empty chair. Chapter 18 Her mobile phone started to ring as soon as Candace walked in the door of her cottage. She dropped her keys on the table and her bag on the floor. She kicked the front door closed with her foot while digging in her pocket for the phone. It was Andrew. I'm, I'm sorry to bother you, he said. His voice fluttered with distress, and his words seemed to stumble over his tongue. No problem. What's up? There was a pause in the conversation, and all she heard on the phone was raspy breathing. Andrew? Yes, I'm here. Just... Dina Cavendish is dead. The name meant nothing to Candace, but she'd become accustomed to Andrew's habit of mentioning parishioners' names as if everyone knew who he was talking about. I don't know her. Oh, she is, was, a lovely child. Candace frowned. Death was tragic enough, but the death of a child seemed even more so. The innocence lost so young, a life cut short before it barely had time to begin. Andrew cleared his throat. I'm a bit shaken up over this news. Would you mind going with me? As Candace parked her Subaru along the curb, she glanced over at Andrew, who was seated in the passenger seat. His hands clung to a string of rosary beads. He wrapped his fist around them, grinding the beads into his palm. The beads were small, carved from dark-stained wood, and a matching wooden cross hung from the end of the string. Andrew had once told her he'd been given the rosary years ago while on a missionary trip to South Africa, and that it was one of his few treasured possessions. Andrew seemed to struggle as he climbed from the car. The small ranch house on Caldwell Place was lit up by the flashing red and blue lights of emergency vehicles. Mick Flanagan met them at the curb. He was quick to insist that they make their visit as brief as possible. He needed to get the crime scene processed, but Audrey Cavendish was being uncooperative. Try to convince her to let us do our job, he said, frustration evident in his voice. I get she's a grieving mother, but she's hysterical and refuses to leave the house. See what you can do. Mick escorted Candace and Andrew onto the porch and into the house. He led them into the small but comfortably furnished living room just beyond the door. A woman dressed in faded blue jeans and an oversized t-shirt paced the room. She gripped a wad of tissues in her hand. When Andrew entered, she turned and rushed toward him. He held out his arms to embrace her. Candace hovered near the door. Mick passed her and walked along the hall to the back of the house. She had a peculiar sense of familiarity when she looked at Audrey Cavendish. It took a moment for her to realize that she'd seen Audrey a few weeks ago at St. Matthew's Catholic Church.
Candace had been waiting for Andrew to finish Saturday morning confession when Audrey came into the church with two teenage girls. Candace distinctly recalled the older of the two girls being less than enthused by the concept of confessing her sins, even loudly cracking her gum over and over. The girl's behavior invoked the ire of her mother throughout their brief time in the sanctuary. Audrey, I'm so sorry, Andrew said, as the woman cried on his shoulder. He led her toward the sofa and persuaded her to sit. The priest dropped down next to her and gripped the rosary beads, twisting the round orbs between his fingertips. Audrey sobbed softly beside him. I don't understand. Why would someone do this to my little girl? Audrey said. Andrew grasped her hand, giving it a comforting rub. Just relax and tell me what happened. Audrey took a few deep breaths and wiped a tear away from her eye. Black mascara trailed down her cheeks. Candace stood at the far side of the room, observing and not speaking. She felt like an interloper, intruding on the family at this distressful moment. She'd have stepped out to wait in the car. But something about the way Andrew was fidgeting with the rosary beads had concerned her. I took Maggie for her piano lesson this evening. Dina didn't come with us, just stayed home. We were only gone two hours. The woman started to sob again. Who could have done this? Her head fell onto Andrew's shoulder. He gently patted her back and muttered words of comfort. Andrew glanced at Candace. His look aligned with her thoughts. What happened? Voices echoed from down the hall, and Candace couldn't stop herself from eavesdropping. Only one she recognized. Mick's voice. No sign of forced entry. She must have known the killer, the detective said. Boyfriend, maybe, the unfamiliar voice said. Possibly. With no one in the living room paying her much heed, Candace inched closer to the doorway, in hopes of hearing the hushed words better. Maybe she could find out what happened, or pick up some hint as to how the girl died. The unknown voice echoed down the hall. Is that written in lipstick? Probably. This might be it on the table, Mick said. Fiery passion? Why would a 16-year-old girl wear something like that? Curiosity became an overpowering force that Candace couldn't overcome. She wanted to hear more. Candace glanced back at Andrew and the mother. Neither seemed to have noticed her movement. She stepped soundlessly out of the room. A doorway at the end of the hall opened into a functional eat-in kitchen. The appliances were white and looked as dated as the dark kitchen cabinets. A stack of dishes was piled in the stainless steel sink, and a greasy frying pan rested on the stove. A round dinette was to the right of the doorway. There was a faint odor in the room that she thought might be urine. Mick 
and a uniformed officer had their backs to her and didn't appear to have heard Candace approach. Their attention was focused on something else in the room. At first, Candace could see nothing but a pair of smooth bare legs on the floor, one twisted back on itself. They were the legs of the young. No blemishes, varicose veins, or signs that age had begun to creep in. The forest green skirt of a school uniform was hiked about midway up the thighs. My God, she looks so young. Too young to die. Then Mick shifted. Candace got her first look at the teenage girl sprawled on the linoleum floor. One arm was outstretched, while the other lay across her chest. Her white blouse was rumpled, but intact. Her face was blotchy, and the whites of her eyes had turned red, as if every blood vessel had burst, staining her sclera. There was a faint shadow on her neck. The discolored skin looked like a line of small circles rounding her neck from one ear to the other. Like a necklace of round beads, or perhaps pearls. Candace averted her eyes for a moment and said a prayer beneath her breath. When she looked back, her eyes caught sight of ruby markings scrawled across the girl's forehead. Four rough block letters. Liar. Chapter 19 Candace drew in a quick breath. She stepped backward. Her shoulder hit the doorframe. A faint yelp escaped from her lips. She cupped her hand to her mouth to stifle the sound, but it was too late. Mick spun around in surprise and glared at her. What are you doing? Her mouth opened and closed a few times, with half words sputtering out before she replied, I, I was just praying, praying for the poor girl's soul. The detective folded his arms and advanced toward her. You shouldn't be here. It's a crime scene. His voice was firm, filled with irritation. You and that priest shouldn't even be in the house. I was doing both of you a favor. He turned his gaze back to the girl's body. And this is what you do. Sorry, sorry. She paused, then asked. She wasn't violated, was she? Mick turned back to Candace. We won't know until the autopsy is complete. He pointed back up the hall. Now please, return to the front of the house before the chief gets here and has my badge. Candace gave one final glance at the young girl's body, her eyes focusing on the loaf of brown bread that rested on the girl's bosom. The loaf was torn down the middle. Crumbs had scattered over her blouse and onto the floor. Candace turned away and moved back up the hall. She stopped at the doorway leading to the living room, glanced in to see Andrew clasping his rosary beads in one hand and Audrey's hand in the other. His head was bowed, and his lips moved as he prayed softly. The house became stifling. Candace's chest tightened, and she found it hard to breathe. Death hung heavy over the home, and her heart seemed on the verge of breaking. 
two bodies in less than a week, both murdered. She wasn't prepared for this sort of thing. There hadn't been a coping with murder 101 class in seminary. Other than her own petty thefts, there'd been little crime in the small Kansas town where she'd grown up. Her exposure to violent crime had been nil minus one. This was becoming too much to imagine, almost too much to endure. Her head spun, and Candace felt as if she would pass out. She had to get out, to get fresh air. She darted out the door onto the front porch. The swirling lights from the police cars broke through the darkness of the night and cast the neighboring houses in red and blue hues. A black van pulled up to the curb. The white letters on the side read Newcastle County Medical Examiner. Candace moved away from the door and further along the porch as another police officer passed into the house. She drew in a deep breath. The cool air filled her lungs and calmed her nerves. As the medical examiner climbed the porch steps, he nodded at Candace and proceeded into the house. She moved to the far end of the porch and took a seat on the wooden porch swing hanging by chains from the ceiling. The Sin Eater had struck again. She wasn't sure why the thought popped into her head or why she suddenly felt the need to give the murderer a name. It wasn't the most accurate of names, especially when she considered the historical context of the ritual. Again, she wondered if she was overthinking the Sin Eater concept. There could be a reasonable explanation for the presence of the bread at both crime scenes. But she was damned if she could see it. She scanned the houses in the darkened neighborhood. A perfect picture of small-town USA. Homes of similar size and shape. Middle-income families living their version of the American dream. She wondered how many secrets lived and breathed on this street alone. How many sins were being committed at this very moment. A small crowd had formed on the opposite side of the street. The rumor mill would be in full swing amidst the hushed conversations circulating through the horde. How many of them would slink away into the dark to bury their own misdeeds where none could see? Reverend Miller? She turned to look over the porch railing. A tall, lean man rested his arms on the white top rail. His face tapered to a chiseled square chin. Even in the dimness of the porch light, his eyes seemed alive with energy. His dark hair shifted with the breeze. He looked familiar, but his name escaped her. Brian Wilder. Andrew introduced us the other day at Robbie Reynolds's. His words trailed off as if he didn't want to speak the word murder. Her recall of the introduction was hazy. It had been in passing, shortly before she and Andrew left after a long afternoon spent comforting Andrea Reynolds. Brian's had been one of a dozen faces that she'd seen that day and Candace hadn't been in the right frame of mind to make new acquaintances. Mr. Wilder, sorry, I didn't see you approach. Not surprised. Please, 
Call me Brian. His voice was pleasant to her ears, almost soothing. She forced a smile. You can call me Candace. I'm surprised to see you this close to the house. Doesn't Chief Jenkins get upset if you wander onto his crime scene? Lyle likes to bluster, but he's just a pussycat at heart. Brian laughed. Don't ever tell him I said that. He gave her a conspiratorial smile. Besides, I happen to know he's up in Philly tonight. While the cat's away. Brian, with a mile-wide smirk on his face, said, Exactly. I thought I saw Andrew around here somewhere. Are you two tag-teaming again? His remark left her feeling a bit perturbed. On one hand, Candace appreciated his subtle humor and found it to be a nice distraction from the dark thoughts spiraling around in her head. But she wondered how someone could be so lighthearted at such a tragic moment as this. A young girl was dead, murdered. Was he just indifferent? Or was it his way of coping with the horror? I drove Andrew over, she said. He asked me to accompany him. Brian gestured toward the front door. Have you been inside? She nodded, knowing full well what his next question would be. He'd want to know details about what happened, what she'd seen and heard. One question would lead to another, and she would be forced to relive every tragic detail in her mind. Before Candace could speak, a sudden flurry of activity drew her attention to the front door. The medical examiner and his assistant were carrying the body from the house. They took care going down the steps, then rolled the stretcher along the sidewalk. As they moved toward the black van, Mick Flanagan stepped from the house and began to follow. Brian glanced at her. If you'll excuse me. He left Candace alone on the porch swing and moved off to catch up with the detective. Moments later, Andrew rushed from the house, gave her a passing glance, and chased after Mick and Brian. A brief discussion followed in hushed tones between Andrew and the detective. She couldn't hear anything that was said, but Andrew's words appeared to irritate Mick. There were vehement headshakes and wild hand gestures on the part of both men. In the end, Mick and Andrew moved down the driveway without Brian. They reached the van just as the medical examiner was preparing to load the stretcher. After another brief exchange, the medical examiner unzipped the body bag. Ah, praying for the dead. She watched as Andrew prayed over the corpse. She whispered her own quick prayer for the girl's soul. When Andrew was done, the medical examiner tried to pull the zipper on the body bag closed. He seemed to struggle, as if the zipper was stuck on something. The stretcher rocked when he tugged and jerked, and after a few moments' difficulty, the medical examiner was successful in getting the body bag zipped closed again. The stretcher was loaded into the black van, the door shut, and the medical examiner and his assistant drove away. Mick walked back to talk to Brian while Andrew returned to the house.
He gave Candace a brief wave and a half-smile as he passed her on the porch. But Candace barely noticed it. Her eyes were locked on a patch of grass along the edge of the driveway, where a small metallic object had landed when it fell from the body bag. Sin Eater is such an eerie title, isn't it? What kind of person would do that? The police may have their first lead, but will it be enough to identify the killer? And what is the connection between the victims? I wonder if that digital recorder holds information that'll help Candace piece together this puzzle. Stay tuned to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to None Without Sin now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. You can find Michael Bradley on social media at mjbradley88. And make sure you follow us at camcatbooks. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on Camcat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.